Let's open up to John chapter 2. We're going to be in the uh, last few verses in chapter 2 and the first few verses in chapter 3 of this morning. But before we get to our text, I want to just uh, draw your attention to a pattern that John is developing here in chapter 2. And the pattern is this. Jesus performs a sign or, or does a notable work. And John then details a human response to that work. At the beginning of chapter 2, here's the first example of this. The first miracle of Jesus occurs at a wedding in Cana. We refer to it as a family and friends miracle because it was a private ceremony in an obscure place. And this is the account of Jesus transforming water into wine. And John adds a commentary at the end of this. Notice verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, so there's the pattern. Jesus performs a sign. He does a great work. And then John details the response. In this case, a positive one. The disciples believed. Well, then, beginning in verse 13, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he's going to perform another great work. Whether it was miraculous in nature, John doesn't say, but it certainly was remarkable, very much public, and drew a lot of attention. Pick it up in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus purifies the temple, manifesting his divine authority along with his righteous and holy zeal, forcefully driving out everyone and everything that was getting in the way of worshiping God. And now John's going to detail a human response, beginning in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, now these are not all Israelites. The Jews in John's gospel would be the religious leaders in Judaism, uh, Jewish rulers and officials, and they are enemies of Christ. They're characterized by hostility, hypocrisy, insincerity all throughout the gospel. And so this is the response. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So notice their response is not one of belief. It's different. They, they present themselves here as, okay, Jesus, we would potentially be in agreement with what you just did in the temple. We just need to see your credential card. Give us your credentials. And this is nothing more than sheer hypocrisy, because in reality, what do we know about this group? No sign would ever be enough. No amount of miracles would ever be enough. In fact, in demanding a sign, they're revealing their unbelief and wickedness. Because all they had to do was consider what they had just witnessed. It was the time of the Passover. Jerusalem was already an overcrowded population. And now you have hundreds of thousands additional, additionally in Jerusalem and all the animals that would come with for the sacrifice of the Passover. 
And in the temple, you would have all of the Roman officials and Jewish officials and all these people and animals. One guy comes in with a little whip and cleans house. One guy who no one really knows in the busiest and most lucrative time of year unilaterally does this. No one lays a hand on him. That's all the sign they needed. They may not have known who he was or where he came from, but they should have said something like this. You're right. We don't know who you are, but you're right. We're guilty. But instead, no evidence of personal reflection, self-examination. They're not demonstrated at all that they care about what Jesus charged them with. What's on their minds? How do we deflect? How do we discredit this guy so we don't have to deal with what he just did? They want to hide behind what appears to be a genuine and honest question about authority when in essence we just want to deflect. We don't want to deal with it. How do we know that's the case? Because of how Jesus responds to them. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, We get verse 21, they didn't. So imagine hearing Jesus' response in verse 19, but we don't have the luxury of the commentary. We don't get the explanation. Why? Why did he speak in that symbolic language to them and not give them the the explanation? Well, one of the reasons is he, he did this as a way of judgment, like he would do later on in his ministry when he spoke in parables as a way to judge those who would not listen. They would not heed the truth they were hearing. So he intentionally spoke in a veiled way because he judged them unworthy of a clear response. And so here is this group, the Jewish leaders, who respond to Christ and his work in unbelief. Notice in verse 22, we go from the unbelief of the Jewish rulers back to the belief of the disciples. So when he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And so we've got two groups so far in chapter 2. Two two responses. One response, they don't believe, they don't claim to believe, they don't have any interest in believing. This is the group of evident unbelief. It's clear, it's obvious where these individuals stand. They are represented by the Jewish uh, elite, the religious elite, the Pharisees are the featured group in this group. The second group is the disciples, those of actual belief. They want to believe. They do believe. Their faith may be weak. They may be confused at times, but they have the real thing, the group of actual belief. Well, in our passage this morning, John's going to repeat this pattern. He's going to refer to Jesus performing signs, doing a work, And then he's going to detail a human response, but this one's different than both of the ones we've seen so far. In fact, it's interesting because it's not hostile, it's not deflecting, it's not discrediting, it's not the response of unbelief like the Jewish leaders, but it also falls short of the belief of the disciples. We're going to call this third response unbelieving believers, or what James calls dead faith. In James 2.17, they don't believe, but they're not hostile. They think they believe. They profess to believe. They appreciate Jesus and his ministry. 
But it's not actual belief, it's artificial. It's artificial faith. This group is represented by the general crowds that are attracted to Jesus superficially, with Judas being the supreme example. From this point on in John's gospel, these three groups, you will see them appear from time to time. The group of actual belief, the group of evident unbelief, and then this group that's in between, this artificial belief. My burden is this, the so-called evangelical church is filled up with this last group, the group of artificial belief. People who think they're Christians, they appear to have faith, they appreciate Christ and his work, when in fact they don't actually believe. This is what we're going to see as we look at this section that I've entitled, Jesus and Artificial Faith. Let's begin by looking at the reality of artificial faith, chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. All right, so the setting here is immediately following the cleansing of the temple. You have the Passover, the sacrifice event, which is then followed by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. During this time, Jesus was active, performing signs. Signs are miracles. John calls them signs because he wants his readers to look past the miracles to the significance. That's why he calls them signs. Now, we don't have any details of what these signs were. The other Gospels don't give them to us. John doesn't give them to us. We just know he's out in the open. He's working miracles. He's drawing the attention of everyone, gaining a reputation as a miracle worker, and gaining a following. Many believed in his name. Believe is one of John's favorite words, favorite themes. In fact, let me remind you of the purpose of John's gospel. John 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for the gospel. No other biblical author writes about believing more than John, and it's not even close. Matthew, Mark, Luke, throw in the book of Acts, add up all the verbs to believe, not even close to what John does. And based on this, I think we can reasonably conclude that John specializes in a theology of believing. But what's also true in this gospel is that John wants to make something crystal clear. Not all belief is really belief. Not all faith is a faith unto eternal life. And our passage this morning is the first of several demonstrating this reality. But it's not clear right away. It gets clear as we keep going in the details. Notice that phrase there in verse 23, believed in his name. That's very similar language if you glance back at chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Same verb, to believe. Same object, in his name. And yet here in chapter 1, that's genuine faith. They became children of God. Chapter 2.23, we don't see that result. We see something different. Let's look at the details. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Many believed, past tense. That speaks to a decisive moment. 
a historical point in which these individuals came to a conclusion about Jesus. Intellectually convinced, look at these amazing works. No one could do that if God wasn't with them. Impressed, excited, enthusiastically drawn to him, attracted to him, admiring him, standing in awe of his miraculous powers. Professing faith, drawing the right conclusions. They believed in his name, the totality of what he represented. So what was the problem? Well, that brings us secondly to the response to artificial faith. The response, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. See, Jesus didn't operate like church leaders do often today. He didn't commit the catastrophic error in when someone is showing a positive interest, a positive, favorable uh, inclination toward Jesus. He didn't automatically assume that's the proof right there that God has done a work in their heart. We operate under the assumption when one responds favorably to Jesus, he'll automatically reciprocate that response. One of the clearest evidences that many believe this is how we've come up with salvation formulas based on that very false premise. Most altar calls for salvation, most prayers for salvation operate under the assumption if you pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart, he definitely will. Well, that's dangerous to tell someone that. And it's based on a false assumption. Notice what Jesus himself does here. He rejects a group of people who had believed. Many, many walked down the aisle. Many made a decision. Many were impressed with the show. But he didn't reciprocate that response. In fact, John has an interesting play on words here. That word believed in verse 23 and the word entrust in verse 24, same Greek word, believe. So they believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in their belief. He had no faith in their faith. Literally, he was not entrusting himself to them. What does it mean when we entrust ourselves to someone? It means we're saying, I'm confident in you. You're trustworthy. You're reliable. You're the real thing. And so with these individuals who had artificial faith, he determined, you're unqualified candidates to receive me. But that begs the question, why? Why? You have individuals who aren't hostile. They're interested. They're affirming, admiring. Why would you not accept them? Man would accept them. Man would immediately count them as believers, report them to the denomination, baptize them, get them in membership. Jesus, why are you acting like this? It sounds so unchristlike. Well, the difference is, he has knowledge we don't have. Notice the reason for Jesus' response into verse 24. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, I'm going to read this again because there's an emphatic pronoun that the majority of your versions left out. If you have the word himself four times, you get extra credit this morning. But most of your versions left it out. Here, I'll read it again. But Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to them because he himself knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
Why'd you repeat that four times? We got it. We get it, John. Well, what John is doing is showing an emphatic contrast between Jesus and everyone else. He's saying there's something unique about Jesus, and he alone can see and evaluate our true spiritual condition. He can do what no mere man can do. Earlier in John's gospel, we saw a glimpse of this. Look at John 1, 47. Remember what he said to Nathanael? Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael is perplexed, as you and I would be, and, and responds, How do you know me? How do you know I have no deceit? That's internal. That's in my heart. That has to do with my motives. How do you know that? You haven't even met me. Well, what Jesus saw that was good in Nathanael is the opposite of what he saw in these believers in verse 23, back in chapter 2. John is highlighting here Jesus' ability to exhaustively and infallibly know the true spiritual condition of every person. He knew the difference between a faith that rests on miracles and a faith that rests on the Messiah. And let's contrast this with us and with the disciples even in John's gospel. They have no ability to make this assessment. Later on in their ministry, when Judas starts to be revealed and exposed, remember what happened? In chapter 13, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And what did they do? I knew it. It's Judas. Nope. They all point to one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. John 13, 22. Not so with the Son of God. He instantaneously, exhaustively, infallibly evaluates the root of the tree. He's not dependent on observing the external fruit like we are. A great example of this, look over at John 6, verse 60. <clears throat> John six sixty. Therefore, many of his disciples, notice again, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Notice verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Who is he speaking to? Disciples, his followers. And he can say, there are some of you who don't believe. And then John, in his commentary, middle of verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. People can become disciples. They can become followers. They can be around me. They can profess faith in me. They can be around the people of God, but they can't actually come to me in genuine faith unless it's been granted by the Father. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Is that the same group of chapter 2? The many who believed in him, who he always knew from the beginning, didn't believe? 
Back to chapter 2, verse 25. Notice there's an additional and related reason involved in Jesus' response to artificial faith. Verse 25, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John is now showing us how Jesus has this knowledge. Where did he get it from? The answer is no one. He didn't need any testimony. He didn't need anyone to explain it to him. He has this knowledge. In distinction from everyone else, Jesus has this knowledge. You see, you and I cannot go up to someone in the church who's professing faith in Christ and say, I know your faith's not real. I know for a fact, although you claim to believe, your faith is dead. It's not alive. To be sure, we can be concerned, we can evaluate, we can express that concern and and call upon people to examine themselves, but no individual in the church has the clarity or the authority to say, you're a professing believer, but you're not. Not so with the Lord. Not so for the Lord of the church. Like many truths in Scripture, this is a warning and a promise. It's a warning and a comfort. It's a comfort to those who are genuine, to those who have the real thing. How is it comforting? He knows the difference between struggling and weakness and unrepentant unbelief. Christ knows that difference. He knows your affections. He knows where your loyalties lie if you're a genuine believer. But it's a warning for the one of artificial faith. It's a warning for the, for the hypocrite, the one like Judas who's living a double life who's become very sophisticated in in their hypocrisy and unbelief. They think, because I'm fooling man, I'm fooling the Lord. No, not so. They think because the Lord hasn't exposed it, He's not going to later. Yeah, He will in His perfect timing. He'll expose it. Or maybe they're not living a double life like Judas. They're just shallow, and they choose to remain shallow. They don't let the Word of God penetrate their heart. They distance themselves from godly, discerning believers. They don't have to deal with the guilt and the shame inside. Often reducing the Christian life down to a list of humanly achievable externals. Yeah, I read the Bible. I go to church. I pray because that's the right thing to do. But there's no love for Christ, no love for His people. No gospel clarity in their thinking. They, they, they tolerate expositional preaching, but really in their private times, they like to live in shallow devotionals. Author David Harrell writes about what typically happens in the lives of those with artificial faith. He writes this, Where the supernatural life in Christ is non-existent, over time the phony Christian will wither away and gradually distance himself or herself from a true New Testament church and break fellowship with true believers. The truth preached will be too hard to hear and impossible to live. He continues, The joy-filled lives and Christ-exalting perseverance of authentic Christians will slowly frustrate pretenders. And that's spot on. There will be an ever-increasing frustration and angst with Scripture's clarity and precision. I want to make the Bible more vague We can't know what Paul really meant. It needs to be more vague. An ever-increasing distancing of oneself from the people of God, or at least from godly believers, because it will be a frustration to them. For the false convert, as time goes on, their heart is progressively hardened to the truth, progressively distancing itself 
from those who are genuine. Well, back to our outline. We have seen the reality of artificial faith, the response to artificial faith. Thirdly, let's look at the representative of artificial faith, the representative. This is a very critical point to consider, especially if you're still not convinced verse 23 is referring to lost people. Maybe you believe verse 23, no, no, that's referring to saving faith because it says they believed in his name. They believed and in his name. And John says, that's, you're a child of God when you do that. And Jesus' response, maybe you believe, it doesn't indicate they're not saved. He's just treating them like second-class believers, just immature, weak. They just need more evidences to keep believing, so he keeps them at arm's length. He doesn't entrust them with any spiritual responsibility, but they're saved. Just in case you're tempted to think that, these details coming up in chapter 3 make it impossible. The verses at the end of chapter 2 are directly connected to the opening verses of chapter 3. Let me show you this. Notice verse 24 again, chapter 2. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, now there was a man. See the continuity there? You have the conjunction now. Your version might have the word and. That connects it. That carries the thought of verse 25. And you have that word man. See what John's doing? Let me give you an individual illustration of a person who believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to him. Let's look more closely at the details of this representative of artificial faith. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is introduced to us as a skilled theologian. He's attained the highest level of devotion in Judaism. He's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, probably a member of the Sanhedrin the Supreme Court in ancient Israel. <clears throat> Notice, this man came to Jesus by night. Why would John put that little detail in there? So strange. Later on, when Nicodemus has actually become a believer, most likely, let me read to you John 19.39. He adds the detail again. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, John, why does it matter? We don't, we don't need to know what time of day Nicodemus came. That's not what it means. The terms day and night in John's gospel have great significance. Night, darkness, is associated with evil, unbelief. All over John's gospel, let's look at a few examples. Look at John 9, verse 4. John 9, 4. <clears throat> We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He's not saying you can't have an overnight job. He's saying when the powers of darkness and evil have their way with me, arrest me and kill me, you're not going to be doing ministry out in the open freely like you are right now. John 11, verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. He's not talking about the sun, S-U-N. <laughs> but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Notice that connection with night stumbling, light not being in him. One more, John 13, 28. 
speaking of Judas being exposed and departing from the disciples. Look at verse 30. Or I'm sorry, John 13, not 28. Look at verse 30, skip down. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So John adds that little detail indicating Judas is in that spiritual realm. He's going out into the night, and he is of the night. The point is, when someone is operating at night in John's gospel, they're not only in literal darkness, they are in spiritual darkness as well. And so back in chapter 3, verse 1, John gives us an additional detail about Nicodemus' spiritual state. He came to Jesus by night, indicating he was of the night, spiritual darkness. Notice verse 2 as he addresses Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He addresses Jesus with a title of honor and respect, Rabbi, and even acknowledges you are no ordinary Rabbi. Uh, you are doing signs that can only be attributed to the work of God. Notice Nicodemus doesn't do what his colleagues do, the Pharisees in Matthew 12. They see signs. They can't deny the miraculous power. But what do they do? It's Satan. Nicodemus doesn't say that. It's God. This is the power of God. We know. We know that you've come from God. He is representative of a group with this attitude. He could be additionally using the plural we so he can be sheltered. I don't want to be exposed as an individual, so I'm just going to be among this group. We know. And he comes to Jesus, not with a question, but with a statement. We know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Think about that. We believe you've come from God because we've observed your signs. That sounds an awful lot like verse 23 of chapter 2. Many believed in his names, observing his signs which he was doing. The person of artificial faith accepts Jesus as a teacher, even a prophet sent by God. Appreciates his teaching, his morals, his miracles. He's not denying any of those things. But what is the ultimate proof that this man is in the category of artificial faith? He lacks the real thing? Well, let's move lastly now to the remedy. The remedy for artificial faith. John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a fascinating answer on so many levels, one of which being he seems to entirely ignore Nicodemus' comments. That statement appears as incongruous. He doesn't really address it. He doesn't give Nicodemus any credit. You're on the right track. You're close to salvation. Your statement doesn't go far enough, Nicodemus, but as far as it goes, you're right. It counts for something. You're at least impressed. You're at least favorably inclined. You're not hostile. You're not discrediting. It counts for something, Nicodemus. Now let me just fill you in with a little more of who I am. No, what's happening here? What's happening here is what John just said in John 2, 23 to 24. You have a man coming who believes and Jesus won't entrust himself because he lacks something. What does he lack? Jesus knows because he knows all men. He knows this is a man of religion who lacks regeneration. And he goes straight to the remedy. 
truly, truly, stressing the absolute importance and certainty of what he's saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A supernatural qualification is required. And seeing there is the idea of experiencing, partaking, possessing. How do we know that? Well, it's confirmed by verse 5. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, and he gets a little more specific here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. Now, we believe and teach the kingdom is future. The kingdom is physical. But at the same time, it has present spiritual implications. It has present spiritual membership. And regeneration is required for kingdom membership. What is regeneration? Well, that's a, that's a theological term for being born again, born from above. And both are legitimate translations in that passage, born above, born again. Uh, both are theologically correct. Nicodemus seemed to understand it more as a second birth rather than a heavenly birth based on his response in verse 4. But the point is, you need a birth that's not physical, not natural. You need a second birth, one that's not of this world. The Spirit of God must make you alive in Christ. He must impart eternal spiritual life into the spiritually dead sinner. And I can't improve on J.C. Ryle's description of regeneration. He writes this. It is the implanting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above. It is the calling into existence of a new creature with a new nature, new habits, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, new fears. All this and nothing less is implied when our Lord declares we need a new birth. And notice verse 3, Jesus is not saying this applies just to Nicodemus, but everyone, unless one, anyone, is born again. They cannot see the kingdom of God. Without the new birth, you can appreciate Jesus. You can believe he existed. You can believe the Bible is true. You can affirm and be amazed at his ministry and his miracles. You can affirm his teaching, his morals. You can try to follow his example. You can be baptized. You can come into the church. You can do all those things and lack regeneration. You have to experience a miracle in your own heart. When the new birth happens, we love what we once hated and we hate what we once loved. Self-interest gives way to God's interests and the interests of others. Self-gratification replaced with self-control. Self-exaltation, lofty thoughts of self replaced with humility of mind, lofty thoughts of Christ. Self-justification replaced with self-incrimination. You stop viewing yourself as a victim in life, in all your circumstances. No, I'm the villain. Self-pity replaced with contentment and humble trust in the Lord. Insecurity replaced with an identity and security in Christ. Self-sufficiency replaced with dependence upon the Lord and His grace. Self-righteousness replaced with a complete abandoning of trust in any self. To state these things a little more broadly, signs of the new birth, unbelief gives way to faith, pride to humility, complaining to gratitude, indifference, jealousy, hate to love, bitterness to forgiveness. Fear of man 
gives way to fear of the Lord. Unless one experiences a transformation like that, they can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, we're not going to cover the remaining verses, but let me skip ahead to verse 8 for a moment. Jesus uses an analogy from nature to teach us about how the Spirit works in this act of regeneration. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Self-evident, right? The wind is invisible to us and uncontrollable by us. We can't tell the wind, start and blow at this speed and then stop at this time. As I was uh, thinking of this verse, I was reminded of a fishing trip with my son that I took a few months ago. We experienced what happens when the wind completely dies and you're fishing on a lake in central Florida in the middle of the day. Not only do the fish temporarily stop biting, but the gnats seize the opportunity to appear and come upon you. And I have fished in Illinois and Minnesota my entire life. I've dealt with gnats and mosquitoes, but I've never dealt with the plague that we experienced that day. If any skin was exposed, gnats were on it automatically. Every breath you take, if it's through your mouth, you're automatically choking. If it's through your nose, it's getting clogged. That's how many gnats there were. So uncomfortable, you, could, you, you couldn't even hold the fishing pole because you're just batting them away, getting them off your, off your skin as much as you could. Sure enough, 10 minutes goes by, you'd see the wind pick up. How do you see it? Because of the ripples on the water. You start to see the wind pick up, and the gnats would disperse. You'd get a little bit of relief. A few minutes later, it would die again. The lake would go to a, just like glass. The gnats would come back with a vengeance. And this very principle in verse 8 was so true <laughs> in those moments We desperately wanted more wind. We desperately wanted to say, start now, maintain this speed. Not too much, because then we can't fish, but maintain this speed, just enough to get the gnats away. But no matter what we desired, no matter what we tried, zero control, zero ability. End of verse 8. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just as the wind is out of our control... Regeneration is out of the control of the sinner. John paved the way for this earlier. He lays the theological foundation in his preface. Glance back at chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born... Not of blood, that is to say, not through natural bloodline relationships. You can't put two Christians together and automatically produce a Christian. Nor of the will of the flesh. No human determination. There is nothing one can do to say, if I do this, I can cause myself to be born again. No amount of personal effort, sincerity, religious activity can produce that result nor of the will of man. Man can't come up with some religious formula, some technique to cause people to be born again. He can't say, come to my ministry. I found a way to make more births happen, more spiritual births. He can't regenerate hearts. In summary, then, the new birth doesn't happen as a result of human relationships, human determination, or human methods. How does it happen? There's only one possibility. 
end of verse 13. But of God. But of God. See, regeneration is different than justification and different than sanctification. Because unlike those, regeneration is the exclusive work of God. That's why we call it the monergistic work of God, the Spirit of God working independently of the human will. You can try to believe whatever you want about whether God is sovereign in salvation or not, but it is absurd as a child saying, yeah, I had something to do with my birth. Yeah, I planned it. I found a way to be born. Now, Jesus is teaching back to chapter 3. His teaching here about the new birth confronts us. It unsettles us because we recognize our helpless and hopeless condition. There is no prayer we can pray to make this happen. Yeah, we can cry out, God, give me life. And if he's working, he, he will. But there is no formula. There's no prayer we can make to automatically make that happen. There's no decisive act we can do. There's no religious ceremony like baptism to make this happen. And yet, it must happen if we are to be saved, if we are to get beyond artificial faith like Nicodemus. We had a discussion in our home a few nights ago with our children. If you have young children in the home and you've had spiritual discussions, you've probably experienced something very similar. The conversation eventually gets to a point of where each child thinks they are spiritually. Am I a Christian? And so we allowed that question to go. We let, we let it go around the room, and, and we had the full spectrum of responses this particular night. I don't think I'm a Christian because I'm too bad of a person. Another one. Uh, I, I'm in the process of becoming a Christian. Another one. I think I might be a Christian. I don't know. And the temptation of a parent there, you probably know it, it's to want to remove that tension. <laughs> it's to think, all right, my child, they're not hostile. Look, they, they want to believe. They're professing belief, belief in Christ. They're not denying anything. I should affirm them in their faith. And at that point, we might be tempted to give them a formula. Oh, you're not sure? Just, just repeat this prayer. Now you can be sure. What we told them that night was this. God must give you life. You must be born again. You must experience a birth from above. And it depends entirely on the sovereign pleasure of God. There's nothing you can do to predict it, to control it. But when it happens, like the wind blowing outside, we'll be able to see the effects. We'll be there to encourage you and affirm it then. I bring that up so we can be reminded that's how Jesus evangelized a man who had religion but lacked regeneration. He just let the tension sit. He wanted Nicodemus to feel the helpless and hopeless condition he was in so he would recognize his need for a remedy and call out for God to act upon him. We've seen the reality of artificial faith the rejection of artificial faith, the representative of artificial faith, and the remedy to artificial faith, regeneration. Which category am I in? You might be asking yourself. How do I know if I'm a Nicodemus and I'm attached myself to everything Christian but Christ? 
Well, for a detailed answer, that's another sermon for another time. Jesus doesn't give that answer right here. But he does give us something. Because what did he say there in chapter 3, verse 8? Just like the wind, you, you can't physically see or touch the Spirit of God. But if he does this work in you, and he dwells in you, as Romans 8 said, the effects will be obvious. The effects will be obvious. So, from a general standpoint, you ask yourself this question. What is it in my life that can only be explained by the new birth? When I consider all the things that religious people can do and unregenerate people can do in the name of Christianity... I should do those things because I'm commanded to do those things. Those are the means of graces. I, I have to read my Bible. I have to go to church. I need to do those things. But what is it that can only be explained by the Spirit of God in my life? That's where the assurance is going to come from. Let's pray and ask the Lord to, to help us with that. Father, we ask that you'd minister your word according to the need of each heart here this morning. There may be some who are bothered by these truths, others who are threatened by them, still others who are hostile. Whatever the response, give them life. If they don't have life, give them life. If they do have life in Christ, bring clarity through your word. Help them to not go to their experiences or their emotions, but to your word to get clarity. And for those who are rejoicing as they hear these truths, as they are thankful and filled with gratitude that the Spirit sovereignly worked upon them and that they, they did nothing to, to earn that or to, to influence it, but, but they experienced a new birth. May, may these truths increase their joy and gratitude. May they magnify the riches of your grace toward them. And we ask these things in the name of Christ for, for the good of the church and his glory. Amen.